think this stuff's mine. That's yours. Perfect. Thank you. Check, check. All right. Don't have to scream, I hope. I've heard those sermons where people just stand up and scream the whole time. I don't know. kind of gets old after a while. I uh, had to chuckle last week when the thorns um, put up on their uh, PowerPoint, what kind of story is God writing? Because I was in the middle of writing this sermon with almost exactly the same title. Do not doubt that the same God works in all of us. My main scripture for today is from Romans chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. Found on page 1007. I'm just kidding. Chapter 5, verse 3. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Because you can't just stop and be afflicted. Life goes on. The sun comes up. You got to keep going. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. Not because we've made it on our own. But because God keeps meeting us in our afflictions day after day. This hope does not disappoint. Period. Does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings stories, you may remember the character Sam Gamgee. He's Frodo's assistant and best friend by the end of the books. And every so often, he just kind of has these asides where his perspective gets shifted And in one of them, they're struggling through one of their many journeys. And he says, I wonder what kind of story we're in, Mr. Frodo. And the title of last week's presentation was, What Story Is God Writing in Your Life? So what kind of story are we in? And what kind of God would write it this way? What does our story say? about the God we serve. Recently, a Facebook friend of mine has been questioning the validity of the Christian faith, pointing out the logical fallacies in Christianity as defined by Wikipedia, chatbots, and his own mind. He doesn't seem to understand that he won't find the truth by going to sources that don't accept the truth. I know he won't get satisfaction from answers that only tell him what he wants to hear. I hope that he can sense that truth does not pander to our feelings. Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17 says, When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. 
Then I understood their destiny. There's something about this life that just does not make any sense until you go into God's sanctuary. You submit to him as the writer of the story. And even then, he doesn't explain everything, does he? But it begins to make sense. But not until then. Until then, it's one long rant against the evil injustices done to us personally. Until we come to the cross. And then it starts to make some sense. So, let's get some answers by going to the sanctuary. To the revelation of truth expressed by the God of truth, the Bible. As the song we sang today said, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Surely we will find more comfort there than anywhere else. For what is false is no comfort. And rather than look to rules or our senses or to logic, I'm going to look at stories to learn about God because I need to know what kind of story I'm in. Maybe you do too. When you read through the Old Testament, from Adam to Noah to the Abrahamic covenant and the patriarchs, There's a lot of time taken up in history by these stories, and not a lot goes on. They were still dressing in robes and riding horses by the end of it, just like they had at the beginning of it. it covers thousands of years of history, it covers the beginning of the Israelite nation as they grow in Egypt, it covers Moses, the Exodus. Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. Wait, getting ahead of myself. It's a good movie, though. Forty years wandering in the desert. And some important things happen in there, but it's still 40 years. And a whole generation dies off except for Joshua and Caleb. There's a lot of people in this story that are in at the beginning and don't ever get to see the end of it during their lifetime. I mean, Methuselah lived almost a thousand years, but he still died before the flood. He didn't get to see much, relatively speaking. Joshua, Caleb, Rahab, the journey from Egypt into the Promised Land was a huge fulfillment I mean, how many promises through the Old Testament did God make? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom he gave all of them the same promise, that your children will be as numerous as the sands of the sea. They'll live in this land that you're just sort of temporarily staying in right now. That was a big promise fulfilled when they entered the promised land. But a lot of the people that the promise was given to weren't there. They'd been dead for a while. Interesting story. 
We move on through the judges, the prophets, the kings, and the priests through the rest of the Old Testament. A lot of the same kinds of pieces to their stories. Lots of God's miracles, miraculous rescues, battles won. Lots of the same people making mistakes. Deciding that, oh, now that everything's good, we'll, we'll worship some idols on the side. Over and over and over again. We see the consequences of sin even for the righteous. The prophets who kept prophesying, we're going to be destroyed. God's wrath is going to come. The Assyrians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. God didn't just whisk them away when all the battle came. They were stuck in the middle of it. The Bible does not record any of them saying, I told you so. But they were there. And then even in the incredibly thorough destruction of Jerusalem and Israel is still incredible mercy to save a remnant. And then after 70 years, exactly as prophesied, God brings them back. That doesn't happen in these ancient historical accounts. You don't see kingdoms conquering another kingdom and, oh, seven years later, sure, we'll just mercifully grant that you all can take supplies. Go ahead, go back and build a temple like the one we destroyed. People don't do that. Dictatorships don't do that. But it happened for Israel. And then even while they're in exile, the books of Esther and Daniel and Ezekiel, powerful books, rescues, more prophecies, promises. Even in exile, even enduring punishment for their own sin, God is still right with them, speaking to them, working things out far beyond what any of them could imagine. God still cares for his people. And then right in the middle of the Old Testament, we have this weird book, Job. It's almost like an opera, except it ends well. It's thought by some to be as old as the Pentateuch. It starts out pretty optimistically. We're like, ooh, he's blessed because he's righteous. Yes! Bring it on. Then we have these weird conversations with Satan. Don't find these in, in other parts of the Bible. And Satan asks a very interesting question. Will a man serve God for nothing? Or is God just buying us off? Pretty important question. We all have to visit that place at some point. Are we willing to serve God for nothing, or at least for not what we wanted? Are we willing to be obedient when it hurts, when it costs us, when we lose things? 
the way Job did. And boy, does he lose things. Wow. Loses his children, loses all his possessions, loses his wife's support, loses his friend's support, even starts to lose his health. I mean, what is there left? And yet, the book does prove that Job will serve God for nothing, even for less than nothing. He argues with God. He complains to God, as we all do when we're going through affliction. God corrects him, and God restores him more than before. If you read the very beginning, this is not just a simple middle-class guy who's doing okay. He had it all. He was fabulously wealthy at the beginning. God takes it all away, and then, in that way that only God can do, gives him more at the end of the story. And enough time to enjoy it before he dies. Kind of a head-scratcher sometimes, isn't it? Then in the New Testament, we have God's people, the church, who are hard put to understand all that Jesus is telling them. Wait, you're going to die and come back to... Wait, what? How does that work? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, very patient with them, (laughs) keeps telling them the same thing over and over. This is the fulfillment of prophecy and promise. He was named Savior, not because he was going to save them from the Romans. They disappear in the next couple hundred years. No. Jesus was sent to save us from the one thing we cannot get rid of ourselves, and that is our sin, which is still here. Still hanging around and irritating and afflicting us for a little while. The church becomes emboldened. God does miracles through them. The martyrdom of saints begins. In the book of Acts, there's persecution, and the church spreads out. Now, they tell you not to throw water on a grease fire. You know why? Because it'll splatter the grease and make the fire bigger. It's what happens when you throw persecution on the church. It spreads, and it gets bigger. It goes into more places, more unreached people groups. More people who've rejected the gospel when you persecute the church. The church falters, it reforms, it splits. There's apostasies again, just like in the Old Testament. We have awakenings, we have revivals. And here we are. And at this point, we run into something new. Our story isn't finished. The Old Testament is. Old Testament's done. But the church has a continuing story. And if you read the ending prophesied, it's pretty cool. 
We get to meet Jesus in the air. I heard from an army guy who was a parachute soldier, paratrooper. He said he always thought it was pretty cool that when Christ comes back, it's an airborne operation. And it doesn't end there. There's still the wedding feast. There's still Jerusalem, new Jerusalem coming down, the new heavens, the new earth, no temple, no night, no pain, no death, all of that stuff still to come. I mean, we all can testify that God blesses us now, but that's going to be amazing. What about Jesus himself? You ever considered his story? He subjects himself to all the issues that we face in our stories. All of them. But his story started before his, his life on earth. He was part of creation, like doing the creating. He witnesses the fall of humanity. And he says that in 1 John 3, it says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It's 1 John 3, 8. That's quite a mission. I mean, it's, it's beyond any of us. It's not beyond him. He lived, he taught, he died, he rose again, he ascended. He sent the Holy Spirit to the church. And if you keep reading this story, there's the plan in place, the promise that he will return to claim his own, return again to destroy the enemy. There's the wedding feast, the consummation, where his story and our story become the only story. So do we see any similarities in the arcs of these stories? Any clue to tell us what kind of God would write them? I think we do. I see that all of the people in them, all of them, go through something hard and unfair and face repeated opposition to the mission God gave them. Ever feel opposed to doing what you're called to do? Guess what? That's confirmation. John Eldridge reminds us that every joy is deeply opposed. When life is hard, it may not be anyone's fault, right, Job? It may just be our world, our flesh, and our enemy that are still hanging around. Secondly, all of these stories involve supernatural forces that sometimes operate unseen in the natural. We don't know the whole story just from what we see, do we? Ever been misjudged by someone? Ever done the misjudging? You don't have to raise your hands. We do not always see it clearly, do we? We don't always see all that's going on. It's the same in all these stories. Your story involves supernatural forces you can't see. More than meets the eye. And they're involved because your place in this story matters. Third, all of these stories include prophecy and promises from the author. Writers would call it foreshadowing. 
God knows all of this before we do. He knew all of what would come from his promise to Abraham. He told Abraham, in fact, about the 400 years that his people would spend being oppressed in Egypt. Before he even had a son. Think of all the prophecies in Daniel and Ezekiel that tie into the prophecies in Revelation. God knows. He's got this. He's been gotten this for all of history. There's never been a time God wasn't on the throne. And there never will be. We may be surprised by the who or the how or the when of our suffering, but we should not be surprised by the what or the why. We have to remember what kind of story we're in. Fourth, in all of these stories, the characters in them (laughs) are required to be uncomfortable. If you keep doing what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting suddenly a different result. It doesn't work that way. You want to grow? You've got to get uncomfortable. You've got to change. <laughs> Man, I just had this figured out. Nope, got to do something different now. Anybody ever had kids? Ever get to that point where you're like, yes, I figured out what works. And the next day you're like, oh, what work? I can't figure it out. What's going on? Now they can fill in the blank. Now they can walk. Now they can grab. Now they can talk. Now they can drive. Now they can get married. Now they can have kids. Now they can choose their own church. Room got awfully quiet. We will be required to change in order for God to work transformation in our lives. Nothing less. God's not just given us a trim, shaving a haircut two bits. He's out for a total overhaul. Total. Not just our bodies either. Total transformation. It's not something you can do overnight. Because our wills are involved aren't they? So then why is there suffering involved? Well, it's because we need it. More on that in a few minutes. Last, all of these stories, all of them, end on the same note. Either the promise of or the fulfillment of triumph and blessing beyond imagination. All of them. think maybe our stories will be similar? I think they are already. 
So why does God put all these themes into his stories? What's he up to? Well, I think God is very clearly concerned with justice, punishment, and overturning of sin, but is equally concerned with mercy, rescue, with redemption of all who will accept the truth, that only through Christ can sin be overcome. Only through Christ can life be had. Only through Christ can the way back to the Father be found. Now, he seems very willing to allow all manner of difficulty along the way in these stories, while also providing for our needs and wants in amazing ways. He behaves very much as both a lion and a lamb. These stories tell us that God is not afraid to afflict the ones he loves with punishment for disobedience, but that he punishes the punishers even more severely. Consider the 430 years of slavery in Egypt, but also the decimation of the Egyptians by the plagues in Exodus. Consider Job's torturous narrative at Satan's hands, but then read the description of the lake of fire in in Revelation and the eternal suffering from which Satan will never escape. The Israelites have been occupied by many nations in turn over the years, but each kingdom was overturned and replaced while the Israelites were brought back to the promised land again and again. Remember the Six-Day War? Arabs and Muslims in the Middle East continue to harass and attack Israel, and yet Israel stands today after all that those nations have done to destroy them. We read of the martyrdom of many saints, of the dispersion after persecution, of the massive worldwide effort underway today to discourage and overturn the church universal. Yet in Revelation, we read of the three rounds of plagues on the earth, the double final destruction of all who oppose the saints at the end, and of the lake of fire's punishment for our enemy once and forever. God's got this. These stories also tell us God knows the end from the beginning. And often tells us some of it, but not, not all. He knows that we tend to misinterpret or misapply or downright hijack the knowledge that he gives us for our own purposes. He knows we need to practice faith and trust in his character more than we need control of our circumstances. Prophecies and predictions. In all these stories, Jesus knew what he was going to suffer. He told his disciples so. And how many prophets in the Old Testament predicted the specific details of Christ's birth, his life, and his death on the cross? Hundreds of specific predictions fulfilled. Now, my Facebook friend would ask, why would a loving God allow suffering if he knew about it ahead of time? The phrase ahead of time doesn't really apply to God, but we'll talk about that another time. My answer would be that we need suffering in order to become like our Savior who suffered. If we're going to learn how to love anyone besides ourselves, in fact, including ourselves, because none of us deserve love, none of us deserve anything good. 
And it's only through suffering that we start to figure that out. Consequences point us to the fact of sin and the reason for sin. And finally, to the solution for sin. Anything less than the painful consequences of our willful rebellion against God will be pointless and dangerous. A lie designed to keep us enslaved. Only by our suffering, only by giving up hope in ourselves, only by understanding the innocent suffering of Christ, do we have any chance at life in any sense. There must be suffering to open our eyes to our Savior and our need for Him. Now the stories tell us that no matter the suffering endured, the end is always triumphant. We mentioned Job ending with more than he lost. After 430 years of bondage and 40 more years of wandering, Abraham's descendants, who were actually as many as the grain of sands on the sea by then, triumphantly conquered and occupied the land they were promised. Hebrews chapter 11 describes the manifold forms of suffering endured by various saints throughout history. It's kind of gruesome. And our own stories have some of the same pain, the same loneliness, the same betrayal, the same loss, and the same disappointment. But then we read of the marriage feast of the Lamb, the bride of Christ adorned for her husband with the bright, clean, pure, righteous acts of the saints. We read of all that Jesus suffered on the cross and every day of his life. But he also looks forward to the day of the Lord and the wedding and all that comes after. He not only lived with us and died with us, he waits with us. He is still with us and understands exactly where we are. Just because we may be in the hard and difficult part of a story does not mean we're going to stay there or that the story is over. In fact, Facebook friend, it is only by allowing God to change us that we can hope to find life. To remain comfortable in sin is guaranteed death. Those hard days feel long when they're in them, but they do not last. They do not win. They do not even fill all the time that we have on this planet. And eventually, they are all but forgotten in the light of our Lord's triumph and our own salvation, rest, and reunion in paradise. This is the story we are in. This is the God we serve. This is the author who writes our destiny. And if it is death to remain as we are, then I say let's get going with the transformation. I will choose hard over bad. I'm sure I'll complain about it. You guys can remind me when I do. But I've been through hard with God, and I've been through bad without Him. And that's not a hard choice for me to make. I find encouragement from Romans 5, 3 to 5, that I read earlier. And in the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14. Paul and his team visit four cities. They win people over, as they always do. 
They prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews get jealous and stir up the people, and then there's persecution and death threats. So they leave and go to another town. Sound like defeat? Keep reading. They go back to all of the towns, and they're not chased away. They go back and they encourage the believers before they return home. See, the persecution was only a small part of a triumphant story. When I was 18, I had a dream. I had figured out which college I was going to go to, what I was going to major in. I was going to play football, all the stuff I liked. And because it was a Christian school, I thought it was God's idea too. Well, I had what I needed to get scholarships, and then I got a nice letter in the mail that said, guess how many scholarships you got? Not a single one. Nothing. Cold bucket of water right here. Well, I was ticked. Disappointed. Mad at God. Questioned his sanity. Anybody ever been there? You will. But you won't stay there. I didn't because God showed me some things, but not right away. Over that summer, looking at my second choice, which I didn't like, I decided it was the only option I could afford. After going to my second choice, which was Oral Roberts University, for two years, I mean, I was doing okay, but I still didn't know why God had sent me there instead of where I thought I was supposed to go. After three years, God took me through some transforming kinds of things. After four years, I started to get an idea, and after five years, I knew why God had sent me there. It was because it was at ORU that I met my wife. You can have college. I'll, I'll take my wife. I didn't know at the time when I was upset and disappointed and telling, telling God, okay, but I'm doing this under protest. I'm sure he laughed. But five years down the road, I was on my knees thanking him for the no that I didn't like. Making that decision to choose hard life over easy comfort that ends in death, it'll cost you something. Actually, it'll cost you everything by the time you die. A nice pickle we've gotten ourselves into, Mr. Frodo, says Sam at a low point in the story. But near the end, when evil is defeated and hurts are healed, and when Sam thinks he's lost everything and wakes from sleep to find he's only lost things that didn't matter, he exclaims in surprise and awe, is everything bad 
going to come untrue? Yes. Yes, Sam, it is. Stay in the story. And that unending joy is where we are guaranteed to arrive someday. No matter what we go through on the way, it is not the end, for our God is still writing, Facebook friend, whether we can grasp all he is doing or not. And because it is his story, his mercies are new every morning.